Hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I am your host of Killer Instinct. If you're listening to me on the podcast, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We post weekly here every Wednesday, and you're not going to want to miss it. If you're watching me on YouTube, make sure you go ahead and do the same. Hit that subscribe button. We post every Thursday. You're not going to want to miss that either. Today, you guys, we have a crazy one. We are uncovering the case of John and Linda Sohas. As we're going through this case, we're also going to be unraveling the lies and deception that came from a con man. And when his web of lies becomes undone, he is marked a murderer. This case has a lot of twists and turns in it. You are going to be absolutely shocked by the outcome. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Jonathan Sohas, who went by the name John, was born on December 20th, 19 1956 to his mother Ruth, who also went by the name Dee Dee. John was actually adopted by Dee Dee when he was very young, so she was not his biological mother. However, she was the only mother he ever knew. Growing up, John was described as someone who was shy and reserved, as well as a mama's boy. He loved Star Trek and trivia, and in 1983, when John was 27 years old, he got married to a woman named Linda. Linda was born on September 17, 1956, and like John, Linda also shared a passion for science fiction, so the two of them really bonded over that. Friends of Linda and John said that they were definitely the definition of opposites attract. John was more of the shy one out of the pair, and Linda was definitely more outgoing. Friends described them as more of a quirky couple. Linda actually stood at about six feet tall, and John was five six. So that, along with their interesting and quirky personalities, their friends definitely said was a sight to see. However, they worked as a pair beautifully. They were so much fun to be around. Everyone loved them, and everyone said that they were soulmates. Now, Linda worked as an artist, while John worked as a computer programmer. And when John and Linda got married, they decided to move in with John's mother, Dee Dee, at the house that John grew up in. And they did this so that they could save some money to eventually buy a house of their own. Dee Dee's house was located in San Marino, California, which is a residential city located in Los Angeles. Now, the idea of living with John's mother was especially not appealing to Linda, who didn't want to stay at Dee Dee's very long. She would often complain to her friends that Dee Dee was an alcoholic and that it was just not a good environment for her and John to be around. Now, in early 1985, John and Linda got some really exciting news. Now, both of them had received calls to come and interview for these jobs in New York, and Linda and John were really excited about it. Linda told her friends that they couldn't tell them exactly what the job was. However, Linda said that it was important government work. And Linda and John really saw this as an opportunity for the two of them to get out of California, to get out of John's mom's house and really start their own future together. Now, their trip to New York was supposed to last for two weeks and the trip kind of backed up perfectly into a second trip that they had planned with their friend, Sue. Now, John, Linda, and Sue were planning on going to Phoenix, Arizona after they returned from New York to go to a science fiction convention. It was a trip that they had been planning for a while, and they were all really 
really excited about it. Now, in preparation for New York, Linda also put her six cats in a kennel, claiming that she would be back in two weeks to pick them up. And then on February 8th, 1985, John and Linda left for New York. Or did they? Now, two weeks came and went, and John and Linda never returned home. And not only did they not return home, no one was able to get a hold of them. And it wasn't like they got to the end of their trip and no one was able to get a hold of them then. No one had been able to get a hold of John and Linda for the entirety of their New York trip. They didn't return to the kennel to pick up their cats and Linda's sister, as well as their friend Sue, started to worry. Sue decided to call Dee Dee, John's mother, and asked her if she had heard from them. Now, when Sue called Dee Dee, Sue felt like Dee Dee kind of had her head in the clouds. She wasn't really paying attention. She said that she hadn't heard from them, but she wasn't worried because the two of them were in Paris, France, which Sue knew was not true because John and Linda told her that they were going to New York. But again, Sue didn't really put that much thought into what Dee Dee was saying. She just wanted to know if she had heard from them. And ultimately, Linda's family were the ones who had filed the missing persons report for John and Linda with the San Marino Police Department. Now, after the report was filed, two detectives had gone to Dee Dee's home to speak with her about the case. And when they got there, Dee Dee again went on this long rant about how John and Linda were in Paris and they were getting interviewed for these jobs. Dee Dee claimed that the two of them were not missing and that they were only on a secret job mission and that is why no one was able to get a hold of them. Now, this is when detectives figured out that Dee Dee's side of the story was more the alcohol talking than anything else. And they also figured out that on Dee Dee's property was a guest house. And in this guest house, there was a tenant living inside of it. So to set up the scene for you, you have the main house, which was where Dee Dee, as well as John and Linda all resided. And then on the property, there was also a guest house in the backyard. And there was a tenant renting out this guest house. The detectives decided to walk over to the guest house to speak to the tenant and see if maybe he knew anything about John and Linda, whether he had seen anything suspicious or irregular. So they walked over to the guest house and when they knocked on the door, the tenant opened the door wearing absolutely no clothes, which authorities immediately thought was quite strange. This man identified himself as being Christopher Chichester. Now, even though detectives were thrown off by his introduction, Christopher really didn't have anything to say about John and Linda. He said he basically kept it his own and didn't really associate with what was going on in the main house. So this really brought authorities back to square one with the big question being, where was John and Linda? Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place.
Now, not too long after John and Linda were reported missing, Sue actually received a postcard from Linda, and this postcard was marked from Paris, France. Sue's postcard read, quote, Hi, Sue. Kind of missed New York. Whoops. But this can be lived with. John and Linda, end quote. Now, obviously, that's a very vague and short statement about what had happened. But when Sue got this postcard, she thought that maybe Dee Dee had been right all along. Sue had disregarded her statements because she didn't feel like Dee Dee was a very credible source. However, now she's getting a postcard from Linda from Paris, who's saying that they didn't go to New York. So having this postcard definitely made Sue feel better about the whole situation and made her feel like John and Linda were safe. However, that all changed in July 1985. Now, in July 1985, authorities received a phone call from Dee Dee, who expressed her concern because her tenant, Christopher, had unexpectedly moved out of the guest house without any warning. Now, the reason that Dee Dee said that this threw her off so much was because Christopher was the one giving her all of the information about John and Linda's whereabouts. She said Christopher was the one who told her that they were in Paris, and that's how she figured out where they were. So in Dee Dee's mind, she said that the fact that the only person who could get in touch with John and Linda being Christopher had just up and left without a word, she was very concerned. She felt like the messenger between her and John had now just up and left, and she had no way to contact her son. Now again, Christopher is the same person who told police that he had no idea where John and Linda were, what they were doing. He said he kept to himself. So all of this information is really throwing police off because they're now just learning that Christopher has been feeding Didi all of this information about their whereabouts. Now, police decided to look more into Christian and his social circle, and that's when they got in contact with some of his friends. His friends described him as eccentric and amusing. He was someone who was able to talk about a lot of different topics. They described him as funny, charming, and also very smart. He attended USC as a film student, and one of his friends remembers always going to different movies with him and talking about films, as well as him always having a film script in his hand. Now, something very interesting about Christopher is that he basically told all of his friends that he was British royalty. He claimed that he was a baronet. To be more specific, he claimed that he was a 13th baronet. Now, most of his friends didn't really question it because they weren't really too informed on what that meant. And they also had no reason to not believe him. If someone tells you something like that, you're not really going to question it. And Christopher's friends didn't question it. Now, several years passed after John and Linda had last been seen, and there was still no sign of them. And unfortunately, Dee Dee actually ended up passing away. And when she did, her house went on the market and was bought by new owners. These new owners decided that they wanted to put in a pool in the backyard of the home, and they hired a construction pool company who started clearing out the backyard and digging out a hole for where the pool was going to be placed. And that is when these construction workers uncovered a body that was dug into the ground. Automatically, this construction company called authorities, and when authorities arrived on the scene, they were able to identify the body as being a male 
body. The body had been completely decayed, and because John was adopted, it was really tough to get dental and DNA records, but it was very clear to all law enforcement that the body that had been found in the backyard was, in fact, John. John had been buried in his own backyard. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. All right, you guys, welcome back. John's body was found wearing jeans and a plaid t-shirt, and his friends said that that was basically his uniform. That was something that he always wore, and when they heard that, they knew without a shadow of a doubt that that was John. John's body had been beaten terribly. He had several blunt force trauma wounds to his head, as well as six stab wounds in his back. Now, after finding John's body, police now had two questions. One, where was Linda? And two, where was Christopher Chichester? Now, police searched the rest of the property to ensure that John's body was the only one at the scene, and they were able to confirm that. There was no sign of Linda's body being anywhere on that property. Now, police started to do some more digging on who Christopher was, and when they did that, they started speaking to some neighbors of Dee Dee's property, and that is when they learned some interesting things about Christopher. Many people described Christopher as manipulative, and there was one bizarre instance where Christopher had actually asked out the 12-year-old neighbor that lived down the street from him on a date. He knew the girl was 12 years old, however, proceeded to ask her out on a date anyway, and that is when her mother quickly declined. Now, after the remains of John were found, authorities quickly decided to move in on that guest house that Christopher was staying at to see if there were any pieces of evidence or anything odd that they could find in there. Police did luminol testing through the guest house and found four very large blood stains. After this, police put their heads together and figured out something pretty interesting. Now, Linda and John had a truck that they had purchased right before their trip to New York, and this truck was their prized possession. Now, after John's body was found, police decided to trace the license plate of that truck, and that's when they discovered that this truck that was originally in California was now in Connecticut. Christopher drove the truck all the way from California to Connecticut, and when he got there, he started a brand new life with a brand new name. Christopher Chichester was now Christopher Crow. Christopher Crow worked at a brokerage firm called SN Phelps and Company, and he was hired to work on their computers. However, Christopher was then fired when the company discovered that the social security number that he had given them did not actually belong to him, but instead belonged to a serial killer, a serial killer named David Berkowitz. After Christopher was fired from there, he briefly worked at a company called Kidder Peabody & Co., but quit his job and went on the run again when he figured out police were looking for him after John's body was discovered. So now we fast forward to the summer of 2008. And in the summer of 2008 in Boston, there is a man named Clark Rockefeller. And in the summer of 2008, Clark Rockefeller kidnapped his daughter. And when I say Rockefeller, I do mean the 
Rockefeller. And if you're unaware of the Rockefellers, they are widely known and they are an extremely wealthy family in the United States. John Rockefeller founded the Standard Oil Company in 1870 and their wealth only grew tremendously from there. It is a very very well-known last name. Now, the details of this kidnapping were that Clark Rockefeller, who had separated from his wife, who was a businesswoman named Sandra Boss, Sandra and Clark got married in 1995 in a Quaker ceremony that had no legal status attached to it. However, Sandra was not aware of that. Sandra said that Clark was charming. However, after a while, he became emotionally abusive and had a terrible temper. The two of them had a daughter in 2001 and moved to Cornish, New Hampshire. Now, Clark's last name, as you can imagine, helped him out a lot. He told everyone that he met that he was a Yale graduate who owned a business in Canada. He also got access to a country club membership and spent a lot of time there. For all things considered, Clark Rockefeller was living a fantastic, fantastic life. However, after the divorce, Clark had a supervised visitation schedule with his seven-year-old daughter. And on July 27th, 2008, he had a visit with her. Now, during this visit, Clark, his daughter, and the social worker were walking on the sidewalk in Boston when all of a sudden, a car pulled up next to them. When this car pulled up next to him, Clark then pushed the social worker out of the way, grabbed his daughter, jumped in the car, and the two of them sped off together. Now, because of the famous last name, this story made headlines, as you can imagine. Clark's picture was blasted everywhere throughout the country, and eventually, it made it to San Marino, California, where multiple people came forward and recognized him. Except these people did not recognize him as Clark Rockefeller. Instead, they recognized him as a man named Christopher Chichester. People quickly figured out that Christopher Chichester and Clark Rockefeller were in fact the same person, which meant that Clark Rockefeller, surprise, surprise, was not a Rockefeller at all. Sandra immediately went on national television pleading that Clark, whoever that was, whoever the man that she was married to, to bring back their daughter. And six days after the kidnapping, Clark was found in Baltimore, Maryland, and his daughter was luckily unharmed. Now, this is when Clark's web of lies completely becomes untangled. Christopher Chichester, who then became Christopher Crow, who then became Clark Rockefeller's name, was actually Christian Carl Gerhard Streiter. Christian was born on February 21st, 1961 in Germany to his parents, Simon and Ermgard. Christian claims his birthday is actually February 29th, 1960, which is in fact a leap year. However, his parents and his birth certificate claim differently. Now, after he was arrested, he actually told police that he was the son of an American actress named Ann Carter. However, Ann denied knowing who Christian was at all. Now, when authorities uncovered his real identity, Christian was arrested and charged with kidnapping and battery. After he was arrested, he did a televised interview where he said that he wanted to be known as a quiet man who was living a quiet life. While he did admit to using a strain of fake names, he did not admit to killing John or Linda. But even though he didn't admit to it, Christian also didn't completely deny it. He said, quote, I'm a Quaker. I am fairly certain I have not hurt anyone. 
end quote. And to police, they really thought at that point that was as close of a confession as they were going to get. Because when asked if you killed someone, if you didn't, you would think that someone would simply say, no, I didn't. However, Christian said, I'm fairly certain I haven't hurt anyone. So again, they basically thought that that was as close of a confession as they were going to receive. Now, after Christian's web of lies was coming undone, police decided to reopen John and Linda's case. And when they did, they had multiple new people coming forward with tips that they didn't have before. A member of a church that Christian attended while living in San Marino said that Christian had once asked him if he had a chainsaw that Christian could borrow. A friend of Christian's also came forward and said that she remembered Christian having a trivia party at Dee Dee's house and this party was in the backyard. And when all of the friends were out in the backyard, this particular friend noticed that there was a piece of grass that looked like it had been recently dug up. And when asked about it, Christian claimed that it was a plumbing problem that he was having. However, after authorities looked into that exact spot where the grass was dug up, not only did they realize that there was no plumbing underneath where that part of the grass was, but they also realized that that was the exact spot where John's body was discovered. Now, Christian's attorney tried to plead insanity for him in February 2009. However, this was denied. The trial began in May 2009, and this was only for the kidnapping cases. And Christian's defense team claimed that Christian believed that his daughter had communicated with him telepathically, begging him to rescue her. Two defense experts claimed that they diagnosed Christian with delusional disorder as well as narcissistic personality disorder. On June 12, 2009, the jury convicted Christian guilty of kidnapping his daughter and he was sentenced to seven to eight years in prison. On March 15, 2011, Christian was charged again, this time by the Los Angeles County prosecutors with the murder of John Sohas. On January 24th, 2012, the judge ordered that Christian must stand trial for this, and the trial began in March 2013. The jury consisted of six men and six women, and Christian's defense team claimed that he had absolutely no motive to kill John, so why would he ever? However, the prosecution had multiple key witnesses take the stand, one including a neighbor who claimed that she saw Christian potentially burning evidence in the backyard shortly after John and Linda had gone missing. Another neighbor claimed that Christian had tried to sell her a rug, and when she opened up the rug, she noticed a giant dark red stain on it. Now, another piece of circumstantial evidence that prosecution presented was the fact that John's skull was found in two book bags, one being a USC book bag and one being a book bag from the University of Milwaukee. And these were both schools that only Christian attended. These were not schools that John had attended. So these bags, they concluded, had to have belonged to Christian. Now, Sandra also took the stand and she said that when she first met Christian, he introduced himself as Clark Rockefeller. She said she never questioned it and thought he was funny, quirky, and smart. 
The two of them met at a party while Sandra was getting her MBA at Harvard, and he told Sarah that night that he attended Yale at the age of 14 years old. Sandra said he constantly went on and on about his family and his connection to the Rockefellers, and Sandra said it was also clear from the start that Christian was very big on privacy, and he blamed it on being a Rockefeller, not for the reasons we actually know now. Sandra remembers him also telling her that he would never travel to Connecticut or California. Remember, Connecticut is where the truck was found and where he started his second life as Christopher Crow, and California is where this all started. Sandra said in 2006, she started getting suspicious of Christian, and she hired a private investigator to try and look into Christian's life. And even this private investigator told Sandra that she could not figure out who Christian really was. Now, for this trial, the defense team really honed in on Linda and said that Linda was the one who killed John. They said that she was six feet tall, she could tower over John, she could have easily done this, and she still hasn't been found to this day. So it doesn't mean that she's dead. She could have been on the run after killing her husband. However, despite their arguments, it only took the jury a couple hours to deliberate. And Christian was actually very optimistic that this verdict would come back in his favor. However, when the verdict came back, Christian was found guilty of first-degree murder of John Sohus. And in 2013, he was sentenced to 27 years in prison. Now, with this all being said, and with this case being closed, and John getting some justice finally, it still leaves the question of where is Linda? To this day, Linda has never been found. Her body has never been recovered. It is not clear whether or not she is dead or alive. However, most people do assume that based off of everything that we have seen and everything that we know, that she more than likely is dead. And if she is dead, Christian is the one responsible for it. It does leave the question of if that is true and Christian is responsible for murdering Linda, why would he not murder them in the same place? Was he thinking ahead and was smart enough to know that if he buried them in different places and if he buried Linda in a place where no one would find her, it would leave the question of was Linda responsible? Because ultimately, that is what happened. It also leaves the question of did he kidnap her and leave her alive for longer? Again, remember, he couldn't have taken her to Connecticut because Christian had spoke with the two detectives right after Linda and John were reported missing. But where does that leave Linda, there's just so many questions surrounding that, and I honestly cannot wait to hear what you have to say about it. And with that being said, you guys, that is the end of this case. All right, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, if you're listening to me on the podcast, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly every Wednesday and you're not gonna wanna miss it. If you're watching me on YouTube, make sure you go ahead and do that same thing. Hit that subscribe button. We post every Thursday. You're gonna wanna stick around for that as well. Also, make sure you go ahead and share this episode. Share this to anyone you know who likes true crime. The more exposure we get on these cases, the more chance they have at being solved, the more tips that could come in, and the better chance we have of getting justice for these victims. I'll be back next week with a brand new one for you guys, and until then, stay safe. Bye, guys. <laughs>